Welcome to this podcast from Wilkesboro Baptist Church, where we are on a mission to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. Good morning. It's so great to be with you this morning. Um, uh, Pastor Chris is, uh, is away at the SBC, obviously, as Tad said, so um, uh, I get to um, come off the bench, if you will. Um, he did ask me to share briefly um, a brief update of the church in Boomer. Um, we have been meeting on Wednesday nights. We found that to be a night that really worked for a core group, and we've had a really great core group meeting. Um, uh, we've eaten together and prayed and, and worshipped and, and fellowshiped and studied God's Word. We have transitioned as, uh, as we meet in this unique situation at a YMCA camp to, to fit within that and to fit within the schedule of camp. We've transitioned to Sunday mornings. Um, so this morning, one of our leaders, who's also uh, camp staff and, and uh, leadership on that camp staff, is going to uh, be delivering the word um, to not just our core group, but also um, about 50 or so staff, mostly late high school and college students, um, up to about 30 years old or so. And uh, then later today, um, uh, Many dozens of uh, campers will come and join us for the week, and uh, we'll have opportunity to worship with them uh, pretty much every night of the week. They'll hear the gospel. They'll get to sing. Um, they'll get to uh, they'll get to encounter Jesus, and we're going to continue with that sermon series this morning. We're going to encounter. Jesus, or we're going to see how Jesus encounters hopelessness from the book of John, chapter 5. So if you want to be turning uh, there, uh, John chapter 5. Last week, Chris, uh, before we saw the story of Jesus encountering brokenness, Chris asked, who is Jesus? And he, uh, he referenced how Jesus is known throughout, uh, at least his name is known throughout Many cultures, many different religions, um, uh, many different philosophies. Sometimes his name is, is used to indicate good things. Sometimes his name is used poorly. But many people don't know that his name means, as, they, uh, as the angel Gabriel said in Matthew 121, it means he, he was called Jesus because he will save his people from their sin. He was called Jesus because he had a mission that his encountering us was more than just to be an example. It was to save us. It was to fix our brokenness. It was to fix our hopelessness. And Chris said that uh, among, among the points was that Jesus is not beholden to our ambition. We don't get to decide what Jesus is going to do. Um, we don't get to decide what he's going to do in the world, in history, or even in our own lives. We can certainly pray toward that end. We can certainly hope toward that end. But we don't get to decide for him. Jesus is not beholden to our ambition. And that's a good thing. And that's a good thing for us. I know we all have had dreams and ambitions. Maybe when you were a kid, I bet a lot of us, I bet there's a high percentage of us, who, when we were children, dreamed of being a professional athlete. Um, and you can give me a head nod if that was you, or you can just shake your head if that, that dream was far from you. But I, 
I dreamed of being a professional athlete when I was a kid, a specific type of athlete, because by the time I was in seventh grade, I knew that this was about as tall as I was going to get. And that doesn't necessarily rule out some of the, the sports like basketball and football. I mean, I'm taller than Muggsy Bogues. I'm about the same height as uh, Steve, uh, Steve Smith, the great receiver for the Carolina Panthers. Um, but um, uh, I, I didn't think that that was the path for me. I was going to be a race car driver, and that might have been predictable for, for you. You might have known that I was going to say that. That was my plan. Uh, that was my ambition. And I held on to that through, uh, through many birthdays and Christmases when I looked outside to see if there was a racing go-kart in the driveway. There wasn't ever. Um, and, you know, that professional athlete dream will follow, uh, follow a lot of kids on into their 20s, but then some will start to transition into maybe pursuing careers and pursuing other, other avenues for, uh, for fulfillment in their lives. But then you have like a Kurt Warner story, right? He got his first NFL start for the St. Louis Rams at 28 years old. He didn't, he didn't give up on that dream until until he had it, right? But at this point in my life, um, I was watching uh, NBA this week, and, and the commentators were talking about how amazing it was that Steph Curry, Stephen Curry, basketball player for the Golden State Warriors uh, from North Carolina, went to Davidson. Um, Steph Curry was just put on a masterful performance, and they were just in awe at how he was able to do that at his ripe old age of 34, which is a year, about two years, will be two years soon, younger than me. So I'm at an age where if I were to do anything athletic, I'm uh, turning back the hands of time. I would be a modern marvel, and I'm not. Um, we all have goals and dreams and ambitions, and they typically coincide with what we believe will be the best versions of our lives. What's going to fulfill us? What's going to give us joy? What's going, to, what's going to make our lives go the best that it can go? And those dreams and ambitions and goals evolve. We might have had childhood dreams, and later we have dreams for our children and for our grandchildren. And we begin to live our lives for, for their sake and for those dreams. Our, our dreams may get more narrow as we get older. Our hopes and our goals uh, may get more, uh, they may get less future-based, and they may be more like, oh, my goal, my hope, my dream is to just feel better tomorrow. My goal is to get out of this financial situation I'm in. My, my goal is to find a way to get my coworker transferred to a different department or to a different location. We all have hopes and goals and dreams, and those are good. Those are helpful. Those, there's nothing in Scripture that would indicate that we shouldn't. The problem is that when those hopes and goals and dreams don't happen the way that we expect or the way that we dreamed or the way that we hoped, we can become hopeless. And what I think we'll see this morning is that what Jesus offers is a hope that transcends our goals, dreams, and ambitions, a hope that transcends our circumstances, a hope that's eternal and unfailing. And so I, I think we'll see that in our text this morning in John chapter 5. We're going to start with verses 1 through 9. 
After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man who was there had been there, had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he'd already been there for a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. We'll stop there, but first we're going to begin to see that hope, real hope, transcends earthly circumstances. Real hope transcends earthly circumstances. This man, we get a picture of his earthly circumstances. He was at this pool called Bethesda. It was a large area. There were several coverings where people who were sick, who were paralyzed, uh, who, who were ill in all manner of ways would gather and they would sit by this pool and they would wait for the water to be stirred. People would have believed that an angel might come down and stir this water. And if they could get in the water when it was stirred, they would be healed. And this man, uh, whatever his... Uh, whatever his sickness was, it seemed to render him paralyzed because he could not, on his own, get in the pool. And for 38 years, he waited for someone to put him in the water. And for 38 years, he would just miss the moment. Someone would step in before he could get in. Someone would, uh, someone would cut in line and they seem, seeming, from his perspective, they would get healed, and they'd go on, and he would be left there, unhealed. His hope was that he would be healed by this pool. And day after day, year after year, 38 years, he waited and became hopeless. And when Jesus walks up to him and says, do you want to be healed? His answer is, it isn't yes or no. It's, I can't. I can't be healed. It's, it's not going to happen. You're going to walk away. You're not going to put me in the pool in time. We're going to miss the moment. The water's going to get stirred. You're going to miss it. That, it. It doesn't even matter. Just go on. I can't be healed at this point. So after 38 years of this hopeless activity, this man is sitting by the pool saying, it's not going to happen. So why is he at the pool still? And in this moment, I think this man becomes one of the most relatable characters, one of the most relatable human beings in all of Scripture. At, at some point in his life, he crossed a, something of a point of no return, right? This thing I've done, this thing I've put my hope in, my life can only be lived 
truly lived if I can get in this pool and get healed? At some point, he realized it wasn't going to happen. But what else is he going to do? I've been here this long. I'm just going to stick it out. Go on. Just, you're good. Just move on to somebody else. So Jesus is like, well, go ahead. Take up your bed and walk. And this guy, he does it. He takes up his bed. He would have likely rolled it up. I'm guessing he would have put it maybe under his arm. And he walks. Jesus doesn't have to wait till the water gets stirred. He says, you're good. Get up. And he does it. And this guy takes his bed. And he goes likely to the temple nearby. And we'll summarize the next few verses, but much like last week's story where uh, a a man was miraculously healed and the Pharisees show up to say, can't do that on the Sabbath. This guy, he's walking around with his bed and the religious leaders... uh, the text says the Jews, I think, it's, I think we could probably imply it's probably the Pharisees. They come up and they're like, hey guy, you can't, you can't take up your bed. It's the Sabbath. It's unlawful to take up your bed. And you would be free to search the law, search the Old Testament for any indication that you can't take up your bed the bed that you laid on because you were paralyzed, suddenly you can walk. There's no indication in Scripture that you're not clear to go ahead and walk. But these religious leaders, in an effort to try to be pure and to try to be good, they create this system of laws, a hedge around the law, extra laws, because if we don't break this, if we don't break our law, we can't break God's law. And while they may have had good intentions initially, by the time we come to this point in history, their tradition has been elevated, not as a protection, but as a law in and of itself. We'll continue reading in verse 14. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple. See, this guy, when they asked, when they, they asked him, hey man, Who told you you could take up your bed and walk? He's like, the guy who healed me. He said, take up your bed and walk, so I did it. But he didn't know who he was. It seems like he didn't know who he was. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Then the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them and said, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking to kill him, seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So, hope transcends our earthly circumstances, and hope transcends sin and death. This man didn't know who healed him. Initially, when he's healed, he gets up, he takes up his bed and walks, but he can't even tell people it was Jesus who did it. 
So it wasn't because of his faith in Jesus that he was healed, which kind of begs the question, why would Jesus heal this guy? What was it about this guy, if not his faith? Because that's what we think of when we're praying for healing. We think, boy, we've got to have faith if it's going to happen. Or if we're praying for a change in our circumstances, we've got to believe that God can change our circumstances if it's going to happen. But Jesus often acts miraculously outside of our faith. In the next chapter, in chapter 6 of John, Jesus feeds 5,000, but there was nobody out there saying that we, that nobody recorded saying, hey, Jesus is going to feed the people. You got it? They're like, the people are hungry, we don't have anything to eat, we can't go to the store. And Jesus does that miracle, right? People believed that Jesus would heal Lazarus in chapter 11, but then when Lazarus died, you don't see a lot of people believing that that Lazarus is going to walk out of the tomb, right? And then Lazarus, he didn't necessarily exhibit the faith that he was going to walk out of the tomb because he was in the tomb. We couldn't really ask him, hey, do you believe that you can walk out of this tomb? Because Lazarus is in a tomb, right? But he sure enough did get out of that tomb, right? So what's Jesus doing here? Because this guy exhibits nothing special. He doesn't even believe he can be healed. Why heal him? What about the other people at the pool of Bethesda? What if, there could have been hundreds, maybe thousands of people there. There might have been somebody there for 40 years or 50 years or 60 years waiting and waiting to be healed. But the text doesn't say that Jesus healed them. It's just this guy who didn't even know who he was. Well, we get a glimpse of the answer to that question when Jesus encounters him again. And this time, he recognizes, the man recognized Jesus. And Jesus says to him, see, you're well. Sin no more, then nothing worse would happen to you. Well, that's weird. What a weird thing to say. Sin no more so that nothing worse could happen to you. This guy was laying in a bed, unable to move himself, unable to find healing, unable to find hope in the one thing that he had staked his whole life on, getting healed in that pool. He sat by it for 38 years. What could be worse than that? The thing that sin brings. Death. Ephesians 2 says you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. There is indeed a condition worse than what that man was experiencing. There is something worse than that. There is something worse than sitting by that pool for 38 years. And it's a condition that... We share with that man, he and he shares with all of us, and that condition is spiritual death. It's eternal death. And it's exactly what we all have. It's exactly the hopelessness that we all find ourselves in. We are just as hopeless as that man was to put himself in the pool. We are just as hopeless. We are just as incapable of making ourselves come alive. Jesus says to him, sin no more. That's the end of the recorded conversation. You might wonder if he said how. 
If he did ask Jesus how, Jesus might have answered, For our sake he made him who, uh, to be sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Like the scripture says in 2 Corinthians 5.21. The truest sign... The truest miracle done in John chapter 5 is that Jesus would say to a man, sin no more, and he might actually do it. Not like the Pharisees would try to do it. Not by trying to work hard to to just try really hard to not sin anymore. But by trusting that Jesus, when he came to earth, fulfilled his mission... And while he healed a lot of people, he fixed a lot of circumstances. John, of all the books, makes it clear. Because three quarters of John takes place in the last week of Jesus' earthly ministry. John makes clear that Jesus' trajectory was always to the cross. All of his ministry, all of his mission was always pointing toward going to the cross where He would become sin for us, where He would die by crucifixion, but in dying, he would, take on our, he would take on the debt that we owed because we all sin, and the wages of sin is death, and Jesus would be put in a grave, and then on the third day, He would get out of that grave. So Jesus tells him, you're well now, right? You can walk now. Take this opportunity, sin No more. And we don't know exactly how the guy responds other than he goes on back to the temple, it seems, and he tells the Pharisees, he tells the Jews, the religious leaders most likely, hey, I know who it was that healed me. It was Jesus. And there's actually a little debate among scholars as to whether or not he was just excited to tell his story, that he had encountered Jesus and he'd been healed, or if he was actually maybe nervous that he might get in trouble for carrying his bed on the Sabbath, and so he was making sure they knew who did it. We don't know for sure. We may never know. But what we do know about what the man did is it confirmed to the religious, religious leaders that they thought Jesus was a problem and they needed to end his life. Again, begging the question, why of all the people Jesus could heal, why the guy that told the people that led them to want to take his life? The answer comes as we continue reading in verse 21. For as the Father raises, this is a discourse now, Jesus is responding He's responding to the claims that he's broken the Sabbath, and he's responding to this idea that, that he shouldn't claim God as his Father. He shouldn't claim himself as equal. He says, he says the, my Father sent me, we're one. Uh, you're going to have to deal with it, y'all, because this is the way it is. It's going to be proven at his resurrection. But in the midst of this discourse, for the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these he will show him, so that you may marvel. That, it's quite a work that he made a paralyzed person walk in an instant. 
But there's going to be some greater works that are going to make even the religious leaders marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. And then down into verse 25, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of God and those who will hear, those who hear will live. Greater works Works that are going to make you marvel are coming. And these works involve resurrection from the dead. They involve the the dead coming to life, walking out of their graves. Obviously, this is a bit of a reference to Lazarus, but also there's multiple people mentioned here, right? Because he's not just talking about earthly tombs. He's talking about spiritually people overcoming the death that we're all born with because we all sin and actually coming alive and that life lasting forever. Why didn't he heal all those people at the pool of Bethesda? Why heal this guy and not, not those other people? It was integral to the story. It was integral to the mission. This was determined before the foundation of the world. In the plan that was set forth that Jesus would save the world before God even created it, This guy was involved. And he sat by that pool for 38 years to realize his life's purpose. And 38 years go by, and he's made, he's he's given the ability to walk again, and he walks to some people and tells them about it, and those people want to kill Jesus for it. And who knows if he ever realized that that was his role in God's story. Right? And how about all those other people at the pool who weren't healed? How integral are they to the story that saves us? And that man who was healed that day is now in some kind of tomb. And all those people at that pool are in some kind of grave now. And Lazarus, the picture of somebody coming back to life, is also, also had another funeral and also went into a tomb again. But what Jesus offers is not a mere change of circumstance to make our lives more comfortable. What He offers The hope that he offers is passing from death to life that never ends. And that's not to say we don't go to Jesus for help for our financial situation or that he'll heal us of our sickness and our pain or that he'll make us better students or better at our careers or that he'll help us advance, he'll help us get a promotion or that he'll help us retire well and love our grandchildren. Yes, go to him for all of those things. But that is not where our hope is. We have a hope that says when everything goes wrong, even if our families leave us because of our hope, even if We're poor to the day we die. Even if our bodies just cannot seem to get fixed. We have a hope that transcends all of that. 
In Romans chapter 5, right before the memory verse, the text says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we also have obtained, obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that our suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has, give, who has been given to us. Our hope. It's not like, boy, I hope it rains because it's going to be hot next week. Our hope is not something that we hold on to, white-knuckled. It's something we possess. Those of us who believe in Jesus, that He died for us and that He rose from the grave, we possess a hope that cannot be taken away. It cannot be taken from us due to our circumstances. It cannot be taken from us due to any kind of suffering. It can't be taken from us due to sickness, due to death, due to loss. It can't be taken from us because Ephesians 2 verse 4 but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up and seated with Him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. God does not have to wait for us To have faith that He'll change our circumstances. To change them. He does not have to wait for our ambitions to match His. He has a plan that He set forth before He created the world to save the world. And when we believe in Him, when we believe in Jesus, we have hope that absolutely is ours. It will not disappoint it is hope that reveals the immeasurable riches of God toward us. And it's hope that doesn't have to wait. It's not that we're waiting to the end. It's not, we're, till we're, it's not that we're waiting to the, till we reach the other side to enjoy it. This is hope for now. Hope is for now. Faith is for now. Because on the, when we do pass away, or when Jesus comes back, we see Him, and we don't need hope, and we don't need faith anymore. Hope is a gift for now. Jesus encounters the hopelessness of our circumstances and our situations with a hope that transcends it all. It transcends our circumstances, it transcends sin and death, and it gives us life. And as we sing, again, I would invite you, if you've never taking that hope, if you've never had faith and been saved by grace, you can do that this morning. And it's not in the act of coming forward to talk to me, but I would be happy to talk to you. But it is in the belief that Jesus died and that He rose. And in that belief is all the Christian hope. And it is hope that doesn't disappoint. 
And it's hope that cannot be snuffed out by darkness. It's hope that we have and we possess for all eternity. So I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. I invite you to respond, whether you're in your seat or want to come forward. Whatever you want to do, respond to Jesus for the hope that He gives you. And if you haven't taken on that hope, it took the, it took the, the guy at the pool of Bethesda 38 years of sitting, sitting by the pool. It could, it could take longer than that. But once you have it, you've got it. And you've got it to the end. So I'm going to pray for us. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the hope that you give us. The hope that you earned by your cross and by your resurrection. It's a hope that can't possibly disappoint. It's a hope that we own and possess because of the great love that you've demonstrated through the cross through the resurrection. Lord, help us to have faith, believe in you, and to enjoy the hope that we have despite our circumstances, despite any of the darkness in our world. We have a light. We have a gift. We have your great hope. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Remember to like and subscribe wherever podcasts are found. 